Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. The gentleman I was asking you guys to pray for, we, uh, I went with him to his mother's house, and he, his two sisters, and his mother all prayed together to give their lives to Christ. And the next day, his mother turned 101. I think that's the oldest person I've had the privilege of praying with. So, And uh, very sharp, very alert. Everybody knew what they were doing. There were tears of joy and everything. So I appreciate your prayers. Great day. Great day to be a pastor. Great day to be a minister, whether you're a pastor or not. Amen. Ah, praise God. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 11. I will be sending out another email this week just to remind you of what's happening this weekend, particularly the moving and Keith Hershey. I want to make you aware of those. If you are available to help us out, even if you can't spend more than an hour or two, I'm sure every, every little bit of loading that you can do on either end or unloading would be appreciated by the Duckwitzes and the Chamberses. And I always want to have you to keep in mind that I I do want you to be anticipating the blessing that we are going to be receiving from with Keith Hershey being here. He'll only be here for the one service. He's a busy guy, goes a lot of places, so he'll have to take off shortly after lunch on on Sunday. But one of the reasons I want to keep reminding you is be here, come ready, come expecting, and come prepared to be a blessing to him. Amen? Amen. All right, John chapter 11. You remember when we wrapped up John chapter 10 last week, uh, he had just gotten done locking horns once again with the Jewish authorities, and he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. And many people came to him and were amazed you know, the, the signs that he had uh, done that John had spoken about, and uh, many believed in him there. And now we pick it up in chapter 11. I'm going to read the first uh, 16 verses. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. 
It's a pretty uh, interesting passage so far, isn't it? I would like to get all the way through John chapter 11 tonight. It's probably not going to happen because there's so much interesting stuff in here. But let's go back and look at the first three verses again. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Skip skip down to uh, verse 3. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. I would like you to read that kind of as a prayer. And it's interesting. If we uh, are concerned, you know, these, Mary and Martha, they know what Jesus is capable of. They've seen his miracles, and they were close to him. He loved them. This was a family that he was well acquainted with there in Bethany, a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. And they thought, if, if there's anybody we want to call, it's Jesus. Why? Just so he can be concerned? No, he's gonna, they, he can come heal him, right? We've, they've seen him do healings before. Uh, and same with us. You know, when we, when we pray, when somebody's on our mind, somebody that we love, a family member, somebody that's dear to us, and we go to Jesus. Uh, it's interesting that they don't say the one we love is sick. Did they love their brother, Lazarus? Yeah, they did. And how often do we pray, oh, this person's so important to me, Lord. I love them so much, so would you please heal them? Uh, Also, he doesn't say the one who loves you is sick. It's the one you love is sick. And that's a super important thing to remember, that when we lift somebody up in prayer, we are lifting somebody up who Jesus loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that is really the root of our faith for anything, whether we're praying for ourselves or somebody else, is the things we are asking, we are asking from a God who loves us more than any father ever loved any child. All right? He's promised us good things, and he has certainly specifically promised us healing. In verse 4, when Jesus says, uh, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I see uh, a similarity here to John chapter 9. You can turn back if you want, just a page or two, where uh, in verse 3, this is where the, you know, they come across the man born blind, and they ask him who sinned, him or his parents, and Jesus said uh, in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, again, God didn't blind this man just to provide an opportunity for Jesus to perform a miracle on him years and years later. Uh, My take on that verse is simply that it's how he became blind and what the sin connection is is irrelevant to what I'm about to do next. I'm going to heal him. And in this case, uh, he's, he's not saying that God caused Lazarus to die just so Jesus could do this extraordinary miracle and raise him. I know we haven't gotten to that part yet, but you know that happens, right? He's, he's, uh, and he also doesn't mean, obviously he doesn't mean Lazarus isn't going to die. He dies, and Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew he was dead before they got to Bethany. Well, I'll show you that here in a minute. Well, we just read it, actually. Our friend Lazarus is dead. How does he know? He got a message from the sisters saying he's sick, but no message is recorded that he had died. So, he simply means that the end result of Lazarus' sickness is not going to be death, but God's glory. 
Lazarus is going to die, but that, that's not what this sickness is leading to. This sickness is leading to God's glory, and it's going to be manifested in his resurrection. Now, this is the fun one. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Why? If he loved them, why didn't he hurry? Doesn't this prove that God wanted Lazarus to die? Uh, I really need to start taking advantage of our technology here so I can throw a couple maps up there. But Bethany uh, was, like I said, it's right outside of Jerusalem, and and this was a, a little over a day's journey to the place where Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan. I can't even remember the name of the place where he was, but you can go back to John chapter 1 where it says John was baptizing. It gives the name of the region there. This is where they were, about 30 miles, uh, maybe a little less, and so maybe a little more than a day's journey. Uh, This is where they were. That means the message from Bethany took a day to get to Jesus. And he stayed two more days, and then it's a day from where they were to Bethany, four days. When they got there, how long had Lazarus Lazarus been dead? Four days. What does that mean? It means he was dead by the time Jesus got the message that he was sick. And so when Jesus said two days later, our friend Lazarus is dead, uh, he he knew. He knew by the time he got the message from Mary and Martha that Lazarus was dead. So when you say it's kind of a crude way of putting it, but what's the hurry? I mean, you say, well, he loved him, so he stayed two days. Why not hurry? Well, he's already dead. Why hurry? On the other hand, you know, why wait? What's the point here? If he knew he was dead, and he also knew he was going to resurrect him, it was kind of a good thing to wait that length of time and to make the statement he was going to make. He's, he did it this way so that no one could question whether or not he was actually dead. You know, Lazarus was not the only one Jesus raised from the dead. There were two others that we have recorded in Scripture anyway. We'll look at them very quickly in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. We read, Now it happened the day after that that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. Next chapter in Luke 8, beginning in verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all Sorry, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there was a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now skip ahead to verse 49. While he, he was still speaking, 
Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. Now, both of these were clearly resurrections. He raised these two people from the dead. And the people uh, immediately involved, anyway, did not question this. They didn't challenge, hey, were they really dead? They knew this. And word got out. It specifically tells us when the son of the widow of Nain was raised that his word went out all over all Judea. In this case, uh, the, in Jairus' daughter, he told them not to tell anybody. I'm sure they did anyway. Uh, but even though the word got out, this didn't apparently cause the uproar that the raising of Lazarus caused. And I can think of only one reason for that. They hadn't been dead long. Widow of Nain, they were carrying him out. All right, He hadn't been buried yet. Yes, he was in a coffin, but they were carrying the coffin. I'm sure he probably he had not been. There's, you know, when he sat up and began to speak, it says nothing about the burial cloths. You know, Lazarus comes out of that grave. He's a mummy. He's wrapped up. They have to loose him and let him go. This guy sat up and starts talk, sits up and starts talking. He hadn't been prepared for burial, burial yet, let alone buried. This little girl... Uh, the people who'd been there with the family, I mean, they knew she was close to death, and they knew, they knew the difference between dead and mostly dead, right? They, but since it hadn't been long in either case, I think the mostly dead idea is what people began to believe. Well, it was a healing, but it was just a healing wasn't exactly a resurrection. It was easy. At least it was the sort of thing that the Jewish authorities could respond with. All right? Uh, they got better. They didn't really. Nobody comes back from the dead. Well, Jesus knew Lazarus. When he got that message, he knew Lazarus was dead already. So he, he's thinking he's going to raise him from the dead no matter what. Let him stay there. Let them bury him. Let them prepare the body. Bury him and put a stone in front of the grave and leave him there for four days. Then I'll raise him up from the dead so that nobody can dispute that it was a resurrection. Now, back to John 11. In uh, verse 7, when it says, After this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't you scared they're going to kill you? We, we, we haven't been over here that long. Last time we were there, they were trying to lay their hands on you because of these outrageous claims you were making about being the Son of God. And now you want to go back? And his response is very, very interesting uh, because... Aren't there, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, does not stumble. What's he talking about there? Uh, he's, he's talking, and this, by the way, this, 
you can go back to John again, back to this, the previous miracle, the miracle of the blind man anyway. And in uh, verse 4, he says, I must wor- uh, John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Interesting parallels here, aren't they? And when he speaks of day and night, he's talking about life and death. He's not afraid to go back to Judea where the Jews want to kill him because he knows that his life is completely in the hands of God. He knows that he will accomplish everything that he's been given to the earth to do, and no one is going to take his life before his time. He says that explicitly, doesn't he? That no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down. So, uh, when, this is what he means when he says, There's 12, there are 12 hours in the day. This is my allotted life. By the way, you know that's really where the phrase or the idea of the 11th hour comes from. I know the phrase, the 11th hour, actually appears in the parable of the, the, the guy who owned the vineyard, and he goes into the marketplace, and at such and such an hour, he hires workers, and then he goes back later, hey, what are you guys doing standing around? Come, I'll pay you to work in my vineyard. And then at the 11th hour, he goes and hires the last batch And then when everybody lines up for their pay, he pays them all the same. And the people say, these people only worked one hour. They worked the 11th hour. And that 11th hour, that's where the phrase comes from. What's it mean to us when we talk about the 11th hour? The last possible minute, right? It's interesting because this miracle that he's about to do launches Jesus into his 11th hour. This is the one that finally sets things into motion for his arrest and his crucifixion. But he knows he's got 12 hours. And then verse 16, when Lazarus, or Thomas says, uh, let us go, also go that we may die with him. Now, there's actually some uh, interpretations of this, some commentators who actually believe that Thomas is talking about Lazarus when he says, let us die with him. It's like, well, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus wants to go see Lazarus. Let's all go and die. Uh, and it's, seeing this as a very pessimistic thing. It's like, they want to kill Jesus. He wants to go there because of a dead guy. Let's just all go there. And Lazarus is dead. Jesus will die, and we'll die. I don't really read it like that, and that's a pretty rare interpretation. I do think what he's, what, what he's expressing is his loyalty. Is, uh, and it really was. It wasn't just some idle threat. Eh, people don't like you in Judea very much. No, they had very, uh, they, they made a very obvious attempt and expressed a very obvious desire to get their hands on Jesus to kill him. And the disciples took it very seriously. And they strongly considered the possibility that if we go back to Judea, Jesus is going to be arrested. And Thomas is saying, if he's going to be arrested, if they're going to kill Jesus, I'm willing to die with him. Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap because he's known as Doubting Thomas. Uh, you know, just because he wanted to put his hand in the nail holes in the pierced side to make sure it was Jesus. But, you know, and we don't know for sure. We don't, these, are, these are all extra-biblical traditions, but there's pretty strong evidence that Thomas carried the gospel to India, possibly even China. Uh, he's, he, there, there are churches there in uh, Madras or whatever it's called these days uh, that, that, were, that were supposedly founded by Thomas. Uh, he is the patron saint of India, and he was martyred there. So, you know, he might have doubted. He might have been a little bit of a skeptic in terms of finding out 
that Jesus really had risen from the dead. But as we were talking about on Easter, once he found out, once he was convinced, there was no stopping him. He went. They didn't just stay there in Jerusalem. Many of them went to the uttermost parts of the world. So, uh, let me look. Where do I want to pick this up? Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Jesus wept. What's famous about that? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. And uh, there's a lot packed into those two words. And there's a little bit of debate about what it means. You know, the immediate interpretation, the people there on the scene, he's weeping. Well, he loved Lazarus. And you can tell how much he loved Lazarus because Lazarus is dead and look how it affects Jesus. We, and, and that's kind of assuming that he's weeping as we weep, that he mourns and grieves as the, as the world grieves, meaning he has lost his friend. But Jesus knows he's about to raise his friend, right? So it's not the loss of Lazarus that he's weeping about. But that's actually closer probably to the truth than maybe we've been taught. Another interpretation, particularly in Word of Faith camp, is that he wept because of the people's lack of faith. You know, if they had just understood who he was and what he could do, and they should have known because they had seen many of them, and, and certainly even the ones who hadn't seen had heard of all the miracles he could do, well... Jesus certainly did chastise people for their lack of faith, particularly his disciples. But we don't see him weeping or agonizing or groaning in the spirit because of their lack of faith, for instance, when they were on the Sea of Galilee and the boat, the storm, uh, you know, that was tossing the boat and they woke Jesus up saying, don't you care, we're about to die. And he said, oh, where is your faith? Where's your faith? And then speaks to the sea and calms it. 
So he chastised them for their lack of faith, but he didn't weep. So how much less would he weep at their lack of faith in his ability to raise the dead? Because this is a big thing. In verse 33, it says he moaned. In verse 38, then it says, Then Jesus, again groaning in, him, groaned, groaning in himself, came to the tomb, and it was, a, uh, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. He groaned. Uh, I want you to remember something. Jesus, God the Son, was present at creation. Colossians will tell us that Jesus was the creative force in the act of creation. God spoke the word. Jesus was forming these things, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the waters. He is from everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. He was there. He saw creation. He saw mankind when, according to Genesis 1.31, it was all very good. Remember that? It didn't stay that way very long, did it? But when God created it all, he created this, and he saw that it was good. He created this, he saw that it was good. Then he created man, put him in the midst of everything he created, and said, it's very good. And here in Bethany is a microcosm of everything that had gone wrong with creation. Man had been innocent and immortal and fit for the presence of God. Now he's sinful, dying, indeed dead spiritually. And all of creation is groaning under the weight of the sin and the fall. Everything wrong with our planet today is a result of the sin of mankind. And Jesus, who made it all, Jesus, who loves us all, wept, I believe, as he took in the damage and the horror that mankind had allowed the devil to wreak upon the face of the earth. The pain, the poverty, the sickness, and most of all, the death. It was all absorbed in that moment. And he wept because he loved Lazarus and because he loves us. He knew that this moment, this, uh, re remember this, Jesus, as we've said many times, as I endeavor to remind myself and you often, is the express image of God. This is an important thing to remember when he, when he did his miracles. He was doing these things to represent the will of God, represent the love of God, the face of God. But he was also the son of man. He was the fullest expression, most perfect expression of what mankind is supposed to be and look like and say and act and feel. He was the highest expression of humanity as God intended humanity to be. He did not lack affection. He did not lack sympathy. He may indeed have wept for Lazarus himself, knowing that Lazarus had to endure that dark passage uh, and face that enemy, face death, and knowing that he would have to do it ultimately a second time. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus fr from the dead, but he also knew that death was an unpleasant experience. 
And he knew that everybody there was facing death. Why? Because of sin. Because of the sin that he came to redeem them from. And he's now getting, uh, he knew, he was not unaware of this, but he's there face to face with it in the presence of friends who are weeping, suffering because of sin. We talk about Lazarus having to go through that passage again. Again, it's one of these things we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there's, again, strong tradition that tells us that Lazarus became a church leader in Cyprus. Um, he, uh, in fact, the specific tradition says that he escaped to there because of the threats that the Jews made. And we'll look at that if we, if we get further. Uh, far, I, don't, I don't think we're going to get there tonight. It'd be good to pick it up so we're not rushing it. We'll pick it up next week. But there were not just threats on Jesus, but there began to be threats on the life of Lazarus. And he escaped to Cyprus um, and was appointed a bishop there, a church leader, by Paul and Barnabas. Again, it's not in the Bible, just a strong tradition. It's possible he spent time in France because his body was there for a while or his his tomb or his uh, whatever, his coffin maybe. And uh, there's actually a memorial in Cyprus today containing part of a skull bone that supposedly belongs to Lazarus. And there's an inscription there reading, Lazarus, four days dead, friend of Jesus. All that to say, (laughs) when Jesus raises you from the dead, you come back with a purpose. There's a, I don't buy this one. I, I kind of buy into the, the things that I just shared with you, tradition, but there's also a, a tradition that Lazarus never smiled for the rest of his life because of the unredeemed souls he encountered while he was in the grave. said so the only time he smiled, and this is one of the things that just sounds like a silly little legend. I share, share it with you just because I found it funny. The only time he would smile was when he saw somebody stealing a pot because he would say, there goes clay stealing clay. Anyway, I don't think that's true. I think he smiled. <laughs> uh, let's uh, tell you what, let's read on here just really quickly. Where are we at? Verse 38. 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. I want to make a quick remark about this public prayer that he made because it's, it's interesting. I used to struggle a lot praying in public. I didn't have any trouble praying in my car, praying in my bed, praying in private. But when I was asked to lead a prayer, uh, and I'm talking, this, this carried forth into my occupational ministry days. It's not something I couldn't do. It was something that I really felt uncomfortable. I felt the pressure of praying in public. And it's not because, obviously, it's not because I fear public speaking. I was comfortable with that. 
it's because I could never get past. It was very difficult for me to pray. I felt it was difficult for me to pray authentically when I'm praying a prayer essentially to be heard by you, by others. Jesus, it's almost like I need to pray. If I'm praying in a microphone, it needs to be the exact same way I pray as I'm praying in my prayer closet. And it's just not true. Jesus said right here, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you have sent me. I am saying what I'm saying to you out loud so the people around me hear me saying it. Now, is that the kind of thing you're going to pray in private? Obviously not. I would encourage you, if you're ever invited to say a prayer at an event, at a funeral, at a wedding, at anything, you can prepare that prayer. You can write it out. You can memorize it, and that doesn't make it any less powerful, doesn't make it any less effective, doesn't make it any less supernatural than if you do it spontaneously. God will be with you in the planning, things like that, all right? It's okay to pray differently when you're praying in public. I'm going to phrase things a certain way so I know that you guys can know what you're agreeing with. I'm, you know, eh, I'm going to beat that one to death. But the other thing is this. Once he prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. That indicates a couple of things to me, and a, a, a couple of possibilities, and they're not mutually exclusive. I believe the main thing it means is there are prayers that Jesus prayed that weren't recorded here. And we know that Jesus got up a great while before day to pray. And we don't have a lot of his prayers, his private prayers, recorded. But we know Jesus was in the habit of doing that. So whether it's talking about his specific prayer from the time he got the message to the time he got to Bethany, did it have to do with prayers he was praying before that? Again, Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead. How do you know that? Spirit of God revealed it to him. When he said, Father, I believe, I thank you for hearing me. And I know you always hear me. I'm saying thank you out loud in the presence of these people so that they know that I know that you know, etc. And he heard something from God that caused him to go up there, command them to roll that stone away, and not sneak in, and not whisper and not pray under his breath, but to say in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So, so if Lazarus didn't come, come forth, they'd know that Jesus spoke this and it didn't happen. But he knew exactly what he was going to say, and he knew exactly what was going to happen when he said it, because he'd heard from God, and he knew God had heard from him. He knew God heard him. And Lazarus came forth. Like this. When God gives you a word, you can trust it. You can believe it. When he tells you to speak to something, you speak to it. I'm going to answer one obvious question. Uh, 
do resurrections still take place? If we can do the works that Jesus did, Jesus himself said we would do that, does this still happen? It absolutely does. There's some very well-documented cases of it happening. But believers die every day. Faith-filled believers die every day. People, family members of faith-filled believers die every day, and relatively few of them rise from the dead. Why? I'll tell you exactly why I think. And I think it's because, you know, when Lazarus died, he didn't go to heaven. He went to this waiting place. Jesus, when Jesus, you know, it's interesting. Jesus told another story of a guy named Lazarus, different, La, different Lazarus. But I don't believe it was a parable. I believe it's something that really happened. Lazarus and Divus, doesn't really name him, but the rich man and, and Lazarus. And it says they could see each other across this gulf. The place where Lazarus was was called Abraham's bosom. And the place where the rich man was, uh, was in, he was tormented by flames. And he wanted Lazarus to dip his finger in the cool water and come and, and drop it on his tongue. But this wasn't heaven. This was a place of waiting. But Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. All that to say, when believers die today, now there's a bodily resurrection that awaits all of us, but our spirits go to be with Jesus. And I think even when somebody is passionately speaking to the recently deceased body of a believer, commanding it to come back, you are commanding a spirit to come back that the last thing they want to do is come back. No matter how much they love you, no matter how much they love their place in this world and their job, once they get a glimpse and a taste and a feel of heaven, they're done with this. I think it is in the rarest occasion that God will actually send somebody back and, for, and, and, and only for a specific purpose. doesn't mean that there aren't going to be those occasions. It does mean I think we need to listen to the Spirit of God. I don't think that just because it's something that happens, can happen, and, uh, and that Jesus said would happen, I don't think it should be the standard practice for believers to be resurrecting somebody every time there's a funeral. Fair enough? And I give you specific instructions. Do not try to raise me from the dead when that happens. Amen? Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.